Our second lesson is a reading from the Revelation of St. John the Divine, the 12th chapter, beginning at the first verse. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared by her, for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sister, who, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink, shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to earth, he pursued the woman and ha who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Saint Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. 
you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This morning, I want to talk about evil. It only seems appropriate on Halloween. For much of the past few hundred years, Western society has done its best to pretend that evil doesn't exist. Although that has proven quite difficult in the face of events like the Holocaust and 9-11, nonetheless, we live in a society that continues to ignore or minimize both evil and death as much as possible, except for today on Halloween, when we go through the strange but now highly commercialized ritual of acknowledging the existence of both as a society. And yet still in a way we do it that we do it in a way our society does in a way that doesn't take evil as seriously as it should. So today I want to take this opportunity on this day when our society seems willing to bring the subject of evil up to address it but from a biblical perspective to talk about how we as Christians should think about evil and how we should respond to it in light of what Christ has done the Word of God identifies evil as the force set in opposition against the goodness of God's creation that assaults the well-being of the world and, most of all, assaults the well-being of humankind. But the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that he has defeated evil on the cross. So we know its days are numbered. And he invites us to join in his victory over evil by bringing his healing and justice and love to the world. I'm looking forward to taking my girls trick-or-treating tonight. I'm sure we'll begin the night by snapping pictures, trying to capture their cuteness in their costumes. And I'm sure that I will end the night by eating some of their candy. I call it the daddy tax. Small price for me taking them around door to door. But Halloween can be a divisive topic among Christians. Perhaps some of you are aware. There are some Christians in church traditions that view Halloween as a threat to our children. Some allege that the holiday's origins are from an ancient pagan feast of the Celts, known as the feast known as Samhain. That's probably how you pronounce it, something like that. But even more, bemoan that Halloween glorifies evil and entices children into the occult. 
And to be fair, I am sure that some do use today as an opportunity to engage in wicked or even occult practices. Perhaps similar to what we saw King Saul up to in our reading in first, from 1 first Samuel. However, I'm not sure that kids dressing up as Cinderella or a skeleton in search of Starburst and Reese's Cups is quite the same thing. But many who disapprove of Halloween have had their imaginations for what it means to be faithful to God, had those imaginations formed and directed toward culture wars. That culture wars is how one is faithful to God. And so they view today as a day to battle. Meanwhile, there are other Christians who come to, the ho to today's holiday, to Halloween's defense. Even, even arguing that it's a Christian holiday. After all, the name Halloween comes from Hallow's Evening, or the eve before All Hallow's Day, All Saints Day, which is tomorrow. It's been observed on November 1st since the 8th century in church, the church. And indeed, the tradition of dressing up in costumes on this day comes from the practice of some Christians dressing up as their favorite martyr on this night, which could probably get pretty gruesome, while others dressed up as demons, not to glorify evil, but to mock evil with joy and laughter because evil has been defeated in Jesus's death and resurrection. Well, I don't bring all of this up so much to settle the debate, but because I believe that these responses to Halloween, either culture wars or mocking the devil, they may reflect patterns in how we Christians tend to respond to the broader reality of evil in the world today, which tend to fall short by either responding to evil in an immature manner that lacks nuance, culture wars, or by responding similarly to the way our larger society responds to evil by not really taking it all that seriously, which mocking the devil might do. The Bible identifies evil as the force set in opposition to the goodness of God's creation that assaults the well-being of the world and humankind more than anything. But the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that Jesus has defeated evil on the cross, so we know its days are numbered. And he invites us to join in his victory by bringing healing and justice and love to the world. In his book, Evil and the Justice of God, N.T. Wright, an Anglican bishop and scholar, defines evil helpfully for us as the force of anti-creation, anti-life, that opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world and above all to destroy God's image-bearing human creatures. And if we turn to our passage from Revelation 12 today, we find it demonstrating this reality and doing so with some very vivid imagery. Some of you may remember this passage from Revelation as part of a three-part homily series I did on Revelation this past Lent. 
In my introduction on the book of Revelation in that series, I explained how the popular view that Revelation is a detailed prophetic script predicting the details of the future end of the world, that view is deeply mistaken and has led to much harm in recent centuries. Christians doing much harm. Instead, Revelation is a book of visions that was written by St. John to a group of seven churches in the Roman Empire during the latter part of the first century. It was written at a time when believers were facing enormous pressure, both economically as well as the threat of physical violence, pressure to abandon the principles of their faith and to assimilate into the values of the culture around them. So the visions of Revelation employ symbolic imagery to represent timeless truths with the aim of encouraging those early believers, the first original audience, to persevere and remain faithful in their circumstance. But these truths the book communicates are timeless. They remain timely. As believers of every generation experience enormous pressures to compromise our principles and conform to the ways of the world. So turning to today's passage from Revelation 12 and looking at it for just a few moments, you can see a fuller analysis or exposition in my, my homily from back in the spring. But in Revelation 12, we find evil, or even Satan, you could say, depicted as a seven-headed red dragon who is stalking a woman in labor and waiting to devour her child. I told you this stuff's creepy. And this portrayal of evil cannibalizing an infant is intended to disgust the listener, that they might feel even more compelled to reject evil in all of its forms. Well, the woman here represents the people of God. In this part of the vision, it specifically represents Israel, thus the, the crown of 12 stars. The people of God from whom Christ comes. So the child represents Christ. But when the child is born, the dragon's attempt to devour the child backfires. As that, that attempt results in the child actually being exalted and enthroned to heaven. And so this represents the effect of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The effect that has on evil, right? Evil thought it had won the greatest victory in, in Jesus, the Son of God, being put to death. And yet it backfired. It led to evil's defeat because he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and reigns on high. But in this vision, once Jesus is victorious, the archangel Michael defeats the dragon defeats evil and throws him to earth where the dragon then seeks to destroy the woman, the people of God who now represent us, the church. And a critical verse is verse 12, which says the defeat of Satan is cause for rejoicing in the heavens, of course. But it says, woe to the earth because the devil has gone down to you. And the way this is meant to encourage believers is that while it may seem like evil has the upper hand in their daily lives, from a heavenly perspective, we know that evil is raging on earth not because it is powerful or because it's winning, but because it knows it's been defeated. Satan's ticked off, right? The end of verse 12, the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. 
He's already lost, and when Jesus returns, he'll be vanquished. Well, the theme of the rest of this vision is that despite evil's fury, God is ready and willing to help his people to not be overcome by evil, but to join in on Jesus' victory over evil even now. And this was not only true for the believers this was written to in the first century, but to us even now. The good news for those of us who are in Christ is that he has defeated evil on the cross. So we know its days are numbered and he invites us to join in his victory over evil by bringing his healing and justice and love to the world. But for us to do this, in order for us to join in Jesus' victory over evil, we need to be able to identify the means by which evil assaults the well-being of God's creation and humankind in this world. And we must not make the mistake of larger society and reserve evil as being a category just for, you know, terrorism and pedophiles or something. Right, N.T. Wright suggests a primary way that evil manifests through any of our lives is when humans believe a lie and then live by that lie. When humans believe a lie and live by that lie, evil will work through them, right? through us. <laughs> we need only to reflect on the story of Adam and Eve briefly to to see how this operates, right? Jesus famously characterized the devil as a liar and the father of lies. And we see this in the Garden of Eden as the serpent deceived Adam and Eve into sin. Not through outright lies even, but through half-truths, right? Which is what's all the rage these days, right? Yes, it always has been. Adam and Eve's sin of eating the fruit represented their belief in the lie that happiness can be found in creation and in life apart from the creator, apart from God. And that represents idolatry, which we talked about recently. It's the evil at the root of every sin. Right? We talked about this in my sermon on the rich young man. So the first source of evil is in the sinful, idolatrous desires of our hearts. Which, as we, as we began to list out the other day, you know, our hearts can turn just about anything into an idol, right? Whether it be money or sex or our country or food or work or physical health or marriage or family or kids, a, a sport, our favorite sports team, a political party, a political ideology, addictive substances, right? Our heart can make an idol out of anything. As we said, we don't usually limit ourselves to just one. So the first way evil manifests in this world is it springs from our own sinful hearts, our idolatrous hearts. But evil not only springs from the lies that originate in our individual human hearts, but also from groups that we are a part of or influenced by, right? To be human is to be communal, to live in groups of people. So we're talking about family, institutions, even churches, corporations, societies. All of these can be the source of lies that we believe live by, and then perpetrate evil in light of those lies. 
For example, society, every human society has lies because it is a human society. Humans are fallen. Every human society has lies interwoven into its narrative that perpetuates the destruction of God's good world and of his image-bearing human creatures. Every society. So just a few examples of lies that have been woven into the consciousness of our American society. You know, first of all, just from the beginning, from the founding of our country, there was the false doctrine of discovery, right? The idea that Europeans discovered this land, and it was, it was baptized by God's will type of thing, you know? This was a doctrine of the church that was then used as the justification for the genocide of Native Americans. Now, this, of course, was not disconnected from the lie, also brought over from Europe, that white people are better than brown and black people. Derived from white supremacy, which led to Chattel slavery, followed by Jim Crow, and continues in mass incarceration. That's not disconnected from the next lie, which is the lie that rich people are better than poor people. Also derived from the myth of the American dream, right? And then there's the belief that America would be doing service to the world if we imposed our way of living and governing on everybody else. That hasn't exactly borne good fruit, right? Or it's at least mixed, I think we can say, right? Then more recently emerging was this lie of Western society that humans are best off being able to act on any and every impulse that we have, right? That's not disconnected from the denial of evil, right? If you deny evil, it's very quickly that, well, anything I want to do must be good. Which is connected to the more recent lie that whatever I feel as an individual is my identity. Right? And we could go on, right? And I hope you see I'm not picking on lies of just one side, right? The, the ones further back are, the, are more struggles for conservatives, and the ones closer up are a little more struggles for liberals. All these lies have caused us as a people to perpetrate, as individuals and as a nation, to perpetrate untold amounts of evil. That force that assaults the well-being of the world and humankind most of all. But the good news is it doesn't have to be that way because Jesus has defeated evil on the cross and he invites us to join in his victory. Even though the age of evil will not fully come to a close until Jesus returns, the life of following Jesus is an invitation to begin reducing the enemy's territory even now and expanding God's kingdom. But unfortunately, the two most common ways that Christians tend to respond to evil fail to be a part of the solution that God intends and unwittingly tend to contribute to the problem, add more evil. The first way Christians mistakenly respond to the reality of evil is by largely ignoring it or avoiding it. This happens when we treat Christianity as primarily having to do with the afterlife, with getting into heaven, right? 
We take comfort in the fact that we are in Christ and that evil will someday be vanquished in total when Jesus returns. So we're just gonna kind of keep our heads down, ride out the waves, maybe eat, drink, and be merry, and hang on to that assurance of salvation knowing that at least Jesus will set everything right someday. We're not gonna worry about it now. To my mind, the, the traditional Christian practice of dressing up on this day with, with the purpose of triumphantly mocking Satan for having lost to Jesus kind of similarly ignores that there's still a whole lot of evil doing a whole lot of damage in the world. And that we could be a part of a solution to that and not just be blindly complicit in it. There's a whole lot of evil doing a whole lot of damage, including in our own lives. Surely there's more for us to do than laugh, right? So the first way we can fail to embrace the victory Jesus won over evil is by, by not giving it the attention that it really deserves, you know? Again, just kind of reserving it for what evil, that's what bin Laden and, you know, pedophiles are. Ignoring that the line of evil goes through every human heart. But a second way Christians have mistakenly responded to the reality of evil is by labeling some groups of people as good, usually their own group, and others as bad. I recently saw a cartoon of a couple who, who must have been newcomers to a church and they were in their pastor's office talking to the pastor and the husband is just raving. He said, you know, this church is perfect. He says, we seem to hate all the same people. But the wife says, honey, that's not very Christian. And the husband says, sorry, you're right. We seem to fear all the same people. The problem when we try to respond to the reality of evil with the us versus them game is first of all that it lacks nuance, right? Sort of like it lacks nuance to blatantly condemn Halloween because there may be a few handful of people who do ungodly things on Halloween, right? More than that though, labeling others as evil as if we are lily white denies the basic truth that we have a problem with evil, right? That our hearts are sinful and idolatrous too. Indeed, I would suggest that we do that. We play the us versus them game, right? Because it's a way to avoid confronting the evil that comes from our own hearts, right? When we can project it onto other people and scapegoat them, it keeps us from having to really face the evil that comes out of us. And when we do that though, we're just adding evil upon evil because we're dehumanizing those other people, right? And probably treating them hatefully as a result or certainly not showing Christ to them. Instead, the Lord wants to help us to not be overcome by evil, but to join in on Jesus' victory over evil. 
through the life of the kingdom, not by ignoring evil or labeling other people as evil to war against, but by continuing ourselves to seek first his kingdom. In Mark today, just briefly, we, we heard Jesus talking to a teacher of the law and instruct him to concern himself with loving God with all his, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and with loving his neighbor as himself. Like, worry about that, man, is basically what Jesus is saying. And when the man agreed and says, yeah, that you're right, Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God if you get that. Right? If you concern yourselves with that. And so the ways that we join in Jesus' victory over evil come through partnering with the Holy Spirit. First of all, for us to better love God by identifying the lies that we've succumbed to, receiving his forgiveness and casting down our idols, but also by guarding our hearts against hating those who still maybe believe a lie that we've recognized and they haven't yet, right? That's a tough one, right? It's like, I see this as a lie, they don't, right? Now we join in Jesus' victory of evil by loving, not warring against our neighbor who is different from us. Certainly by speaking the truth when appropriate, where we have the authority, but doing so in love. By practicing forgiveness toward our enemies and toward those that we love. By using whatever privilege we have, if we have any, to advocate for justice, particularly for those who have less privilege. By serving the least of these in particular who are most vulnerable, they are the most vulnerable to evil's exploit. It is spirit-empowered approaches to evil, like, like I'm just describing, that will be a light in the darkness and attract others to Christ. And so on this Halloween, this All Hallows' Eve, let us ask for God's help and courage to not ignore the evil in our own lives. For it is the greatest enemy evil is. And in Christ and his spirit, we have the means to overcome it. But let's also ask God to help us be nuanced in our responses to the evil that we see out there. So we do not label something or someone as evil whom God has said is good and bears his image. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.